Sup, fools? This is the QTR Podcast. Today is June 8th, 2020. Fucking ready to go on this one today, man. I've been waiting to talk to this guy for years and never occurred to me to reach out to him except for like two days ago. And of course, he responded right back to me and he was like, yeah, let's do it. I was like, shit, what the hell have I been waiting for for two years? First and foremost, I want to shout out my patrons. Patrons are people that make the podcast possible. The podcast does not happen without them. They are people that sign up through Patreon and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I'm going to shout out my patrons. I'm going to emphasize that this podcast has a two-drink minimum. I'm going to warn you that this is not investment advice, and then we're going to get on with the show. First and foremost, I want to shout out my exclusive gold and silver dealers over at JM Bullion. I actually just got a nice little thing from the Perth Mint from them the other day. They shipped it quickly, turned it around on time. It arrived in style, in fashion, anonymously, in a nondescript box. Nobody knows except for the whole world now that I have it because I just broadcasted it on my podcast that goes to 50,000 people. But aside from that, you know, it was very nondescript. JM Bullion is, out of all of the gold and silver providers that I've worked with, My absolute favorite. I am stoked that they are partners on the podcast. They always have great inventory. They have been in business for just about a decade now. They've done over $3 billion in sales. Folks, you don't turn around $3 billion in sales unless you're doing something right. Even if you had a negative margin business where you were selling $20 bills for $10, you couldn't do $3 billion worth of sales in a decade. That is an astonishing figure, and it speaks to the type of business that they do and why they have such a great reputation in the industry. QTR podcast listeners have their own saleswoman at JR Bullion, JM Bullion. Doesn't matter. Point is, it's JM Bullion. I'm still learning. I still get nervous. It's my first podcast. Please bear with me. Kathy, with a K, email kathy at jmbullion.com. Tell her that you heard from the QTR podcast, you want a discount, you want free shipping, and you won't settle for anything less. But just visit my friends over at JM Bullion if you think gold and silver is the way to go. Second, I want to thank my friends over at the Sanglucci Steam Room. The Sanglucci Steam Room and Wall Street Jesus are the OGs of the options market. Folks, they are the fucking keyboard cowboys of the options market. They're honest people, they're transparent, they're great to do business with, I consider them personal friends, and the Sanglucci Steam Room is a wonderful tool for tracking big money flows in the market, and uh, Lucci, who last time he was on my podcast was talking about his $400,000 daily loss that he took in Amazon, just posted his P&L for May yesterday, and he was up over half a million dollars. So he discloses his losers and his winners, and it speaks to his character and the type of person he is. They have been using the Steam Room for a decade now successfully uh, because it works. It's aesthetically beautiful to look at. And it's different than the unusual options activity you get with most trading services. It is a comprehensive way to track flow coming into the options market, which we all know can be very lucrative. Lucci is also offering the 3LT playbook, which are the three rules that he used to make himself a seven-figure trader, as well as the Sang Lucci Master Course, which is his course in finance without all the jargon, bullshit, and nonsense that you get from some stuffy guy in a fucking suit and tie. Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus, Charlie Bathgate are my friends. They're friends of the podcast. Check them out. Link is in the podcast description. Also, this podcast is brought to you by my friend Pete Hedgetus over at The Trader's Path. If you're going to join an investing community, a day trading community, I would strongly consider The Trader's Path. 
I know the guy that has started it. He's an honest guy. He's looking out for the people in his day trading community. He's doing it not because he's like super stoked I'm making a huge profit from running it. He's doing it because he wanted to create a community where traders and investors are actually concerned with one another and they have each other's best interest in mind instead of all these whack-ass trading services that are out there that you've probably seen ads for on YouTube and other places where you know the guy running the service is just trying to fuck people over. He's just trying to smash and grab his money. He's just trying to front run the people that are paying for his service. And Pete was actually part of that and said, I want to get out of that and start my own thing. So now with the Trader's Path, he offers daily watch lists. He offers investor education. They trade in all kinds of markets. They trade red markets, green markets, options, stocks. Pete is available at all times. You can talk to him directly if you want to. He's a very nice person. Please get in touch with him if you would like. Pete at thetraderspath.com if you have any questions or you're interested. Also, there's a link to his service in my podcast description. Tell him QTR sent you and you're not signing up without a fucking discount. And that is that. Pete will take care of you. Trust me. And he's a Liverpool supporter. So we love him for that too. This podcast is also brought to you by... My friends at Corvus Gold, Robert Mizello, my good buddy, Jay Mintzmeyer, Russ Valenti, Nicholas Parks, my friend Nathan Mishada, Traders for a Cause and Investors Underground, Chris Bede, still with me, my brother, Ken R., Crichton Titus, Will Smith, Michelle Koenig, Dilling Davis, Ken and J.K. Cunningham and Stank Love, Brainerd Ferguson, thank you guys so much for your continued support. And also, I want to shout out some patrons that have uh, signed up recently since the last podcast and some that have been around for a minute, like Ben Birnbaum. Thank you, my friend. Government Cheese, I just shot you an email. Thank you. My friend Ken just signed up. Uh, Daniel Pereira, Jiggins, and Thomas J. Osborne. Mr. Dan242 is in the house. Thank you, my friend. My homeboy, Dane. My buddy, Matt Donahue. And how about some people that have been supporting the QTR podcast for a while, like David Fiorino. Thank you so much. Aqua Bear and Steven Lekowski. Judy C. White, thank you so much for your continued support. The Death of Rats and Craig Dosher. And how about Matt Merle and my friend uh, Nathan Master. All right. How about that shit? Ladies and gentlemen, this is not investment advice. This is not financial advice. This is not life advice. And all of the usual disclaimers. Please turn this podcast off now. Rate it one star. Do not listen. Here's what you do. You rate the podcast one star out of five on on iTunes and then stick your phone in the toilet and hit the flush paddle. And then uh, that's how you listen to the podcast, basically. You don't hear anything. You just talk shit and, uh, and give me the business and then you destroy your electronics. Welcome to the future. Take two alcoholic drinks to the face. I'm ready to roll with this one. All right. I'm really excited to have my next guest, uh, Mark Defont. I first saw Mark Defont in uh, on the Joe Rogan experience. I am a longtime fan of uh, Graham Hancock and, you know, have read his works uh, since before he was ever on the Joe Rogan podcast. Uh, my uncle had got me into Zechariah Sitchin and any kind of pseudoscience, really, that you could come up with. Uh, I had dabbled in for a while, so naturally one of the episodes I was drawn to a while back was uh, Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson speaking with skeptic Michael Shermer and uh, Mark Defont. And uh, it's one of my favorite episodes because there's so many things to unpack and there's so many good contested points and interesting topics to talk about. But from watching that episode many times, it's a three-hour episode, I've probably watched it a hundred times now, the the one problem I always had with it was I always felt like Mark Defont 
got the short end of the stick in that... Uh, oh, got to turn that off. There we go. Uh, I always felt like Mark DeFont got the short end of the stick in that debate. I felt like he was interrupted the whole time. I felt like uh, he was... Uh, getting, I felt like he was getting teamed up on uh, on points even that I thought he was getting right, that he was scoring on. Uh, and so I looked him up and I said, Mark, why don't you come on my podcast and we'll talk about not only that, but we'll talk about everything uh, that Mark DeFont has done because I find his knowledge base to be uh, exceptional. And I'm just generally stoked to have this guy on the podcast. So Mark DeFont is a professor of geology and geochemistry at the University of South Florida before he became involved in research related to the misuse or misunderstanding of science by society he specialized in the study of volcanoes more specifically the geochemistry of volcanic rocks the associated processes within the mantle and the origin of the continental crust my old job (laughs) he has been funded by the National Science Foundation National Geographic the American Chemical Society, and the National Academy of Sciences, and has published in many internationally renowned scientific journals, including Nature. He's also written a book that I want to talk to him about today called uh, Voyage of Discovery, From the Big Bang to the Ice Age, and he's published several articles for general readership magazines such as Skeptic, which of course is uh, you know how his tie to Michael Shermer, and Popular Science, and he's also appeared on the Joe Rogan podcast, as we've talked about, Mark DeFont, how the hell are you, my friend? Well, I'm just great. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's a great opportunity. Yeah, I'm really I'm excited that you kind of accepted the unsolicited invitation. Oh, well, you know, uh, I had in the back of my mind uh, been aware of your podcast, and then I started looking at them and realized that this was really a nice opportunity. I appreciate you asking me. Yeah, sure. So let's start off by talking about the uh, the Joe Rogan podcast. Sure. And basically, for those unfamiliar with what that debate was all about, and generally what Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson are asserting, uh, and what you and Michael Shermer were asserting in response, can you give my listeners, maybe that haven't watched that podcast, a... Uh, a very bird's eye overview of of what that was all about. Sure. Uh, sometime in in 2016, uh, Michael contacted me, and he had written an article for um, Scientific America about Graham Hancock, briefly touching on some of the. Uh, I think Graham would even admit there some fairly fantastic ideas, and being a skeptic. Um, he'd asked me uh, with my background in geology and archaeology, he asked me if I would um, take a look at what Graham was saying and see if I could write an article on it. So I had never uh, heard of Graham Hancock until that point. So I got his book and and read it and you know, Graham's very interesting in his discussion of archaeology and uh, related scientific fields too. So after I'd read the book, I, I realized that uh, he was taking some real science and kind of integrating it with um, what I would call fantasy. I, I don't want to insult Graham, but uh, it was sort of not so much science-based. So what I wanted to do was write an article showing that he he what 
what science was good, but also what parts of his his thinking were really out in left field. And so I wrote an article for a skeptic magazine. There's a funny story there. Uh, well, I don't know if it's so funny, but uh, one day before the show, uh, Michael Shermer gave me a call and said, oh, will you be on this show with me? So I, I don't know if he got panicky right before the show and decided maybe he wasn't an authority on this or what, but he asked me to come on, and I hurriedly prepared for it. So I'm not sure I was as prepared as I as I could have been uh, for that show. But uh, it turned out to be, I, I think, a, a very interesting discussion. Uh, Carlson and Hancock are very bright guys, and uh, they have a lot of good ideas. So do you want me to go into their hypothesis? or? Yeah, uh, let's touch on it from you know a broad for, with with b- relatively broad strokes, um, and then we can kind of narrow it down a little bit. But uh, talk about kind of what science says holds up about their hypothesis and where they lose you, where the fantasy comes in, in your opinion. Well, I haven't read it, but uh, Graham wrote uh, a book back in, I think it was the 90s, called Fingerprints of the Gods. Right. And uh, he... He talks about a lost civilization that came from that that was long ago uh, that lived uh, apparently on Atlantis, uh, what uh, Plato talks about uh, in his book on um, on a, the lost city of Atlantis, and then, and so Graham kind of starts out trying to prove that scenario that this civilization was lost and it gave though it was a, a very advanced civilization and, and it gave its its knowledge to the rest of the civilizations in the world once uh, Atlantis was destroyed so there were some vi- survivors according to Graham that went out and did that now I don't want to I don't want to kill uh, Graham's theory here by trying to put it into my own words, but I think that that's a good synopsis. He believed uh, that also that uh, they were telling us that the world would end uh, uh, when the Mayans said it did in 2012. So, of course, 2012 came along and it didn't happen. And then by the time he got around writing uh, Magicians of the Gods, he had changed his mind and decided that Atlantis uh, was... I'm not, I'm not quite sure uh, where he decided. I think he was pointing towards Indonesia at the time. Right. And, uh, and now I think uh, his new idea is that it might have been somewhere in, even in North America because it was, uh, in theory, destroyed by the comet. But I, I, I remember uh, reading his latest book, but I don't, I don't remember some of the details of it. It's been about six months since I read it. Maybe you've read it and no more detail. Well, the, the general gist of what they're talking about, and I like Graham Hancock. I think he's a very well-spoken person, and he certainly understands the subject matter very carefully, which I think to the outside observer is kind of what may confuse people about where the scientific community stands on these things versus where he stands on them and what's widely accepted versus what's you know what his theories are and i'm not 
not trying to discount his theories or put yours up or vice versa. But I think that was part of what got missed in that podcast. And I mean, generally what he's asserting is that, uh, you know, 12,000 years ago, there was a, a lost civilization. I mean, that science doesn't roundly accept. Is that right? Yes. And I, I don't know, uh, Graham would disagree with me, but I don't, I don't think that there is any evidence of that advanced civilization that existed. Now, I do want to say, though, that since, since that Joe Rogan podcast, Graham and I have become, I think he would consider us friends. We've had a lot of nice correspondence. So I think Graham's a great guy. Uh, I just disagree with him from a scientific perspective. That's all. Yeah, and I I would say the same. And I'm coming from the Graham Hancock camp, and there's a lot of things that I'm with Graham on. You know, all of the stuff that he talks about. You know, sovereignty over your own mind, and uh, you know, the use of hallucinogens, and you know, sure. all, all of these sure. things that that I and I've been listening to him and watching him, and you know, watching John Anthony West, who unfortunately passed away recently, and. Robert oh, I didn't Schock know that. In these, okay. Yeah, John Anthony West passed away, I think, uh, about a year ago or a year and a half ago. And, uh, you know, watching these guys, I mean, these were the guys that got me interested in ancient Egypt. They got me interested in the pyramids. They got me interested in the, you know, water erosion theory around the Sphinx. Um, and they're still some of my favorite people to listen to. But I just thought that in your interview with them, to me, it, it became kind of clear what was going on, right? There, there were certain points in that interview where they felt like, I guess, they were so... J- Joe was safe to say in, in Graham's camp. And a couple of the things that they called you out on to begin with were, you know, and uh, some, uh, something you said that they considered to be ad hominem at first. You know, these kind of like little technicalities, whatever. But I didn't hear any real refutation of the science. And in fact, when you talk to Graham about, you know, things like Gobekli Tepe and you talk to him about some of his theories surrounding cataclysm, uh, you know, you said, well, you said this in your book. And he said, well, I, I didn't say that. You know, Victor Klub said that in, in the book. I'm just reporting what he said, which I kind of thought of as a cop out. Did, did you feel the same way? Um, well, yeah, uh, I guess a little bit. Uh, at one point, Graham told me he was a reporter. Right. And I kind of, uh, I kind of felt like, um, that wasn't really a fair thing to say since you're, you've got a hypothesis out there and you're trying to support that hypothesis, I presume with evidence, which is what scientists try to do. So if we're going to have a talk about science and the scientific basis of of your hypotheses, then we should definitely uh, not be addressing each other as a reporter versus a scientist. I took him uh, at his word that he knows science, and I think he does. I think he knows a lot of science. One of the reasons I enjoy reading his books, he's a very good writer, but he also knows a lot about archaeology, and and I will not fault him for that. He's got a very good grasp of, of uh, history. So I... I don't see him as just a reporter. I see him as a as a man that knows his science and is trying to use that science to put forth his theory. Is that fair enough? Yeah, well, I got the same impression. I mean, reading everything that he's done pretty much and 
being familiar with him for a long time. And I know he was a reporter, you know, and that's how he right. claimed that he got interested in, uh, you know, when he was doing, you know, his beat was Ethiopia or whatever. And he was, somebody told him they found the Ark of the Covenant. And that's kind of how he got on the current path he's on. So I knew he, he was a reporter, but to me to hear him say that now, all these decades later, after, you know, really what I would say is advocating, like you said, for, for his hypothesis and for his thesis and, and certainly selling books uh, that, oh, yeah. that advocate for those things to hear him kind of say, well, I, I wasn't really saying that Victor Klub said that, or, you know, Bill Napier said that. And I just, you know, I support it, whatever. As a, as a fan of his, I kind of felt like, ah, oh, he was letting off the gas there a little bit. Uh, yeah. And, and I'm not sure. Um, also, I think he he was uh, angry because of a mistake that I made, and that was that I had submitted an article. I had submitted that article to Michael, and with the understanding that Michael would um, make anything that w I said not appropriate uh, would take it out. But I put up the article for my class to read on the internet, which was a mistake because uh, obviously it could be found. And Graham read it and was, I think, rightfully uh, angry. I, I said a couple of things that uh, were not nice about him, and uh, I wasn't trying, uh, in my mind anyway, to personally attack him. So I tried to stay, during our conversation, I tried to stay, uh, you know, without generating any more anger than he already was. And uh, he calmed down after a while, and I think we had a, a better uh, discussion. I think for a while I, I came on the show just as I think um, Graham and, and uh, Carlson and Rogan had kind of uh, dumped on Michael a little bit. So by the time I got on, I was pretty pretty fiery in, in, in an effort to save Michael a little bit from being ganged up on there. Yeah, but I, I still thought that the way that the conversation was directed, like you came in and you said immediately, like, oh, I want to address Gobekli Tepe or something, whatever you said at first. And Rogan was like, no, talk about this. Talk about something. I just felt like felt like you were being held back during that discussion a little bit. So let's cover a couple of the broad subjects that you covered in that uh, okay. interview because I want to get your take on them. Uh, we can start, and if you don't have a take on them or it's something you haven't looked at significantly, then we can just pass. Um, I'd be interested. Yeah, that's fine. I'd be interested to know what your take is on uh, Robert Schock's theory about the uh, the water erosion around the Sphinx. Um, are you familiar with what he has theorized, and and John Anthony West and Graham as well? Yes, and in fact, uh, in the skeptic article, I addressed it in some detail uh, because uh, a rather famous archaeologist has done um, work on uh, the, the Sphinx, and um, I've, I'm sorry, I've forgotten his name, uh, but uh, he pretty much argued uh, and showed a lot of evidence to show that, that uh, the, the block that was dug around where he's seen the water erosion um, is, and I forget the details of it, but he showed that it, it couldn't have been related to that and was probably related to a much earlier events. They've got evidence, if I remember correctly, in the old graveyards that um, 
that they're much uh, younger also, and they still show uh, that water erosion. So it's probably water erosion out there that occurred um, since it's been uh, developed, even though it's a, it's a climate that's dry. They still do have rain out there. Now, of course, he would disagree with me, but uh, I think there was a very good argument put forward by the archaeologists from the geological perspective. And I'm sorry, I didn't expect us to get into that, so I, I don't feel like I'm remembering a whole lot of the details from that. I'd have to go back to my article and take a look at it. Yeah, that's no problem, and I can post that online after the fact or whatever. And it's, you know, like I said, if you don't... I didn't give you a list of topics we're going to talk about, so if you're not, uh, you know, I'm not expecting to be prepared on everything. What is, uh, what's your take on Gobekli Tepe? Because, uh, you know, Hancock seems to think that there was something magical going on at Gobekli Tepe. It's certainly one of the oldest, or if not the oldest, uh, monoliths, right, that we've uh, discovered. Uh, what's your take on it? And for those, for those that don't know Gobekli Tepe, explain what that is also, too. Well, Gobekli Tepe is a, a fabulous um, tepe in uh, in Turkey, and it is, I, I believe you're right, it is uh, the oldest place uh, that we find um, buildings and structures with fabulous artwork. Uh, unless something's been discovered since 2017 that I'm not aware of. Uh, so I would say Gobekli Tepe is one of the greatest archaeological sites around. It was, I believe it was just chosen last year um, as uh, one of the important uh, places in archaeology by the, an archaeological association. But anyway, that's a little off the topic. Um, so Gobekli Tepe... Uh, Graham would would say that Gobekli Tepe was a place where hunter-gatherers learned from uh, this advanced civilization how to make uh, those stone carvings and the artwork there. And I, my argument was that all of the artifacts that have been dug out from Gobekli Tepe show that in the early part, somewhere around, I don't know, 12,000 years ago, uh, there were hunter-gatherers that started carving there, and hunter-gatherers lived there for an extensive time, and there's no evidence of an advanced civilization. Uh, all of the bones are from wild animals. There's no uh, domestic crops uh, that are found in the digs. The, uh, let's see, the the... The stones, they find only uh, stone tools. They don't find any kinds of metal uh, that, that are typically associated with advanced civilizations. So my point was, look, you don't have any evidence here of metals. You don't have any evidence of all of the things we think of in advanced civilization. You know, why should we assume then that it, it was advanced? And we talked a little bit about what's happened at Easter Island and Graham, I had brought up Easter Eyes as an example that you can have uh, stone objects made by stone objects. And basically all of the 
all of the things on Easter Island have been carved by stones. I hadn't been there when I first talked to Graham, but I made a, a trip a year and a half, I guess it was last summer, out there, uh, two summers ago, out to uh, Easter Island. And fabulous uh, archaeology, uh, but those carvings almost, oh, I don't know of any ge uh, archaeologists that think those carvings were made by metal. They were all made by stone. And of course, I don't know if you know it, but Easter Island at one time was uh, a paradise, and uh, the people that went to and discovered Easter Island destroyed the environment pretty severely. It once, I think, supported about 15,000 people, and now only two or 3,000 people live on the island. So when Cook came and uh, rediscovered the island, uh, he found uh, very few people there because they had, you know, really destroyed the environment. And when you look at Easter Island and the Moai, of course, which are the big uh, stone heads out on Easter Island that I'm sure everybody has at least seen a photograph of at some point, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty widely accepted that the way, and actually there's still, I don't know if it's a tourist attraction or what, but there, there's still guys on the island that uh, continue to make like replica Moai using the same types of stones to kind of um, dig away at the other stones, right? Like they, they would carve those. Oh yeah, that's an excellent point. Uh, I am, I've actually watched them. The, the reason for that, and this is my field, I'm a volcanologist, so uh, there's a, a tophaceous rock out there. It's, it's softer uh, than, you know, the kind of rock we see mostly in, in the east coast uh, where, where I am and and that is uh, has made it uh, easy for people with stone tools uh, to carve that rock and I believe the same thing is true of, of Gobekli Tepe so you, you've got it to where it, you know you don't need metal tools uh, to create uh, what we're seeing at these sites archaeologically so I think the difference is that Graham would say that Easter Island and Gobekli Tepe and a few other sites were recreated by an advanced civilization. And I would only argue that uh, those, those places, although very important archaeologically, uh, don't show any signs of what he would call an advanced civilization. And, of course, we got into the comet uh, uh, crisis. Yeah, yeah talk about 12, that and, and the, the torrid meteor stream and... Uh, you know those because there is some there is some sound science there as well too. Um, talk talk about that a little bit and what he was kind of asserting that a you know a cataclysm via comet uh, could happen at some point soon. Which you know, in all fairness, we really don't really don't know what the hell is going on out there. I mean, we think we do, but. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, well, I don't even know if we think we do. I mean, I I think we could be hit by uh, comet strikes. Look look at what happened out in Russia. So yeah, uh, uh, I think that's not an impossibility for sure. Nor a meteorite, large meteorite impact. How, however, um, I've got, I I had a very interesting conversation with Graham recently, and he said, "Hey, why don't why don't you go read this book uh, on?" Uh, that was written by Powell. And so I grabbed a copy of that book and 
started to read it, and I'm, I'm just looking, trying to find the title here. Uh, it's, uh, it just came out uh, this year. It's called uh, Deadly Voyager. And I got that book, and I read it, and it's changed my mind completely on, on a comet strike 12,900 years ago. Uh, at the time that I went on the Joe Rogan show, the articles that I was reading had, uh, had given some fairly interesting uh, evidence to suggest that the layer uh, that was supposedly laid down by comets striking our atmosphere, uh, that, it, that it didn't exist. Uh, they couldn't reproduce the original results. Well, I think that uh, Paul has shown, uh, after putting all of this evidence together, that not only are they finding platinum increases very at a very sharp boundary in many, many sites, not only here in North America, but also in Europe and in South America on four continents. So, so there, there, there's a lot of evidence. But you know, platinum is a is an element that's it's uh, enriched in in uh, meteorites and sometimes comets. Now, one of the problems back then was that also that there wasn't uh, uh, any evidence for a comma striking the planet. You would expect, even from a comet, which is made primarily of, uh, predominantly of ice, you would expect a crater to form, uh, but no one was finding a crater. Since that time, there has been a crater found. It's called Hiawatha Crater. It's below the Greenland ice sheet. But there's some dubious dating on it. We, we only know that it could be as old as 13,000 years, but it could be very young, too. So we don't need, though, as it turns out, uh, that crater, because the things we find at this boundary layer, uh, like uh, nanodiamonds, which formed under high pressure, lots of carbon from forest fires, and these iron spherules, all of those uh, could have been uh, formed in these air bursts, uh, multiple air bursts from uh, uh, comet strikes, probably from the Toriad shower. Uh, one scientist has looked at that and, and shown some evidence that uh, we could have gotten uh, a shower, a huge shower of these large comets coming in uh, from, from there. So it, it now looks uh, very good, in my opinion, from a scientific view kind. I would say even the evidence is overwhelming that uh, that there was a air burst and that uh, it deposited these nano diamonds and not just nano diamonds but nano diamonds that form under high pressure. It fo formed all these other things. There's no shocked minerals there, which we'd expect in a crater if a crater was formed. Uh, from a meteorite, or uh, even if a comma struck, but because probably they didn't strike the Earth and send up material, uh, that's probably why we're not seeing shock quartz. But three years ago, in 2017, when we first started talking about this, I was totally um, una unaware uh, that the shock, the shock minerals weren't a prerequisite or good evidence for an impact, not an impact, but an air burst like this. And uh, subsequently realized that, yeah, we could have all these other things without having the shock minerals. Like, I don't know if you're familiar with the Cretaceous tertiary boundary, but at that boundary, uh, there's a, a deposit uh, full of the ash deposit. It's just full of shocked quartz. 
and other high-pressure temperature minerals that form when the meteorite struck the Earth. So I, I hope that's kind of a general summary of, I think, where science is right now. Yeah, How does safe, this is it safe to say that you've kind of warmed up to, to Hancock there? On I have definitely warmed up to the comet hypothesis. Now, uh, Graham and I have had some discussions in email, and I think we, we both agree that, that this does not um, does not tell us anything about a lost civilization. The only thing right. it tells us is that we could have lost Clovis at that time. Uh, if you'd like me to talk a little bit about Clovis, I can, in case some people aren't familiar with please it. Please do. Yeah, please do. Well, we find, uh, we, I'm not involved in it, but archaeologists uh, found, uh, believe it's uh, near Clovis, New Mexico, these elongated um, spearheads. And I had always assumed that they were elongated uh, to kill the large megafauna uh, that existed on Earth today. Uh, and, but we only find them um, up to the boundary where we're finding this comma strike. So for whatever reason, the Clovis culture seems to disappear uh, when the comet burst uh, came and a lot of people have interpreted this. I know Firestone, that wrote the first paper on the on the on the uh, comet strike and the deposit. I think that was back in 2007. Fire uh, Firestone et al. Uh, he was talking about you know the layer that formed and how the Clovis disappeared. We don't find apparently any any Clovis heads after the comet strike. So it's natural to assume then that this impact had some effect on on the Clovis culture. Now, whether it, you know, I, I think it's doubtful that it killed off all the people that lived then. I my personal my personal impression is, and this is just an opinion, is that we might have had uh, these people hunting for megafauna, and the comet strike killed off the megafauna, and when the megafauna was gone or were gone, then you didn't have any uh, need for these long-tipped uh, Clovis points because there was no more megafauna. So if the comet strike kills off the megafauna, maybe the Clovis culture wasn't wiped out, but there was no more need for these long spears. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but that's kind of my takeaway. I think the the Firestone group would say that it it wiped out not wiped out the Clovis culture, but certainly uh, destroyed it enough to where uh, they stopped hunting in their traditional style. So where do you diverge from, Graham, when it comes to, I guess, probably we would be talking about what the probability of a future comet strike or meteorite strike would be, or uh, do you diverge from him at all when it comes to that? I mean, what do you, what do you think the chances are of that happening? Well, I don't think we're—I uh, don't think we disagree on anything now related to the comet strike. I think where we disagree is on—he—he he would say that this is what destroyed his lost civilization, and then they passed on their advanced technology to other civilizations. I, I hope I'm speaking correctly for Graham, and I would say that there was no lost civilization that—that. That 
the these other civilizations just learned their advanced technology as time went on. Is there a possibility of this happening now? Yeah, I think uh, if you look back in the geologic record, uh, we can fairly well predict how often different size comets and meteorites strike Earth. Uh, the last big comet strike uh, was Tunguska, and I'm kind of sketchy on the date. I think it was around 1912. Do you know, Chris? I don't, not off the top of my head. I'd have to look that up, but somewhere in the early 1900s, it struck Russia. And uh, 1908. Thank God. 1908, okay. And, and it was, it was uh, a tumultuous thing. Thank God it was in the middle of Siberia where very few people right. lived. It could have been really devastating. And I think uh, scientists... I'd have to check this, but I think scientists uh, would say that we're near uh, a chance for this to happen on a statistical basis again. Yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised if a large comet c came in or large comets. Uh, I'm not, a, as you know, a, an astronomer, so I, I can't tell you uh, specific details, but I think Cram and I agree that, that a comet could strike yeah, or comets. I think that that's something that it's like very important when he Graham talks about that comet research group. I think it's something that it's very important that we look at because it's kind of this, you know, as he says, it, it's, it's this ever-changing set of variables out there in outer space that at any second really could surprise us, right? I mean, there's no, and there's nothing we can do. I mean, we're just kind of helpless. So if something wants to come down and, uh, you know, plunge through the atmosphere in the middle of Siberia, what, the, what are we going to do? We're not going to do shit. We got to, you know, <laughs> like get out of the way. Like, you know, if something, if a comet decides it's going to come down and it's going to uh, hit the Earth, uh, that can release, that can be absolutely devastating. I mean, it could be absolutely uh, cataclysmic, as he says. Yeah. So total destruction of human population kind of stuff. Right, right. So it's funny that we wouldn't Cats really Cats and dogs living, living together. together. <laughs> Mass hysteria, exactly. So, I mean, it's safe to say that look, if if you're Hancocking or arguing for this lost civilization and uh even if your evidence is not based on the scientific method and it's just anecdotal uh, you know, the, the discovery of, of that and really your concession that you now think that that happened combined with, you know, the finding of Gobekli Tepe, uh, you know, they give you a little shot in the arm. They give you they give your theory a little bit of credence. Now, that's not to say that it's not to discount the fact that he said one thing in, in fingerprints that, you know, he's kind of turned around on and admittedly changed his mind on right he admittedly changed his mind on the on the mayan calendar thing um so the the question is whether or not i guess it's intellectually dishonest to kind of throw theories out there without the scientific backing for them and i think that's kind of the the case at bar here that's kind of the big question right and and to me that's what it sounded like you guys were trying to figure out and argue about because Carlson and Hancock, they are, they understand this shit very, very exceptionally well. And they're coming at I it agree. from, you know, they seem to be coming at it from the angle of, we've got this, we've got our conclusion, and now we need to back into the evidence versus, 
you who seem to be coming at it through, let's see what conclusion the evidence leads us to. I mean, would you say that that's fair? I think that's very fair. I, I would only add that I, I am a skeptic, uh, and so I, I'm always at first skeptical about things, and that's where I was with the comment when I talked to uh, Joe Rogan and others. And since that time, I think the evidence, well, maybe even some of the evidence I didn't know at the time, I think all of that now has come together to make a very, very strong story uh, that could eventually change this hypothesis of a comet airburst into a real theory. I'm, I'm certainly strongly convinced that um, something very powerful happened 12,900 years ago. Well, that's good to hear, and it's good to hear you be able to just say, hey, you know, I got it wrong. And uh, and I think that's... And I, you may... I, go ahead. Oh, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I, I just wanted to add, though, to you, you may want to... Uh, your, your listeners may be interested that uh, a very famous geologist named Shoemaker who discovered the crater uh, in uh, Crater, Arizona, uh, has... Or, or I shouldn't say he discovered it, but he was the first one that proved uh, that it was due to a meteorite impact. Uh, he created a fund. He's now passed on, but he got funding to look for uh, comets and meteors that are uh, potentially going to strike the Earth. Uh, they're not. They're not yet down to small size objects. Uh, like the one that w went through Russia recently, you know, a few years ago, but they they are uh, they are looking for these things, and of course, if we find it far enough out, we might be able to send a, a spaceship to it to, uh, you know, move it or do something at least that would keep it from hitting the Earth. So there's yeah. funding for that. Was that the uh, was that the guy that came on at the end of the interview or no? Same guy. No, that was. Malcolm Lecomte, he's the guy uh, that did the platinum research on the boundary layer. He's a really bright guy. Uh, and uh, he's, uh, I think he's a geochemist too. And he he looked and did the platinum analysis. And it looks to be very fine work. He's got peaks on those uh, curves that are astounding. So I would recommend uh, Paul's book to anybody that's interested in this topic because he shows some really great graphs in there of how platinum peaks and how nano diamonds peak, so on and so forth. Great book. Do you want to talk just for a second about what you and Carlson were talking about at the end of that podcast where you were talking about uh, glacial floods and uh, uh, the um, – that area up near Washington and Oregon and just kind of lay out for my listeners. I, I have a feeling a lot of my listeners are going to go back and listen to that interview now after this one, if they've never heard it. Um, but can you kind of sum up what you guys are talking about? Carlson is, I mean, the guy is fucking brilliant. I mean, he's just, he understands the he subject is. matter extraordinarily well. And you, the two of you, that is the best part of that entire podcast. When the two well, of thank you, you, when the two of you start talking about, um, uh, the, uh, the the flooding and the uh, the basin and uh, I, the name is escaping me off the top of my head, but you can fill in my listeners. Well, he's uh, boy. Not only is he a bright guy, he's a really nice guy, 
and I, I, I would like to have dinner with that guy some night and pick his brain. But anyway, uh, he, uh, he astounds me because of his depth of knowledge in geology. Uh, he, he really knows his stuff, and, and he's just a, you know, I mean, he's not a practicing geologist, uh, I believe. So I was very impressed how much geology he's picked up over the years. Uh, but we do disagree, and I and I don't think much has changed on that side. I think, if I can speak for Carlson, he thinks that, uh, like Graham, he thinks the comet caused massive flooding in uh, in the Western United States. And hmm, I I think now, after reading Powell's book, that you don't need massive flooding to destroy uh, the Clovis people. You just need these huge fires that apparently, I mean, I think we they're talking about 10% of forested area in, in these four continents or on these four continents burned. I mean, can you imagine how much um, carbon went into the atmosphere during that period of time? Uh, no wonder, you know, there, there was such a huge climate change at that time. So I would just go on to say that they don't need to call upon all that massive flooding that, that they called upon in, in 2017 uh, to destroy uh, this so-called civilization that existed then, or even the Clovis culture. I think the Clovis culture could have uh, been reduced by the fires. But anyway, uh, so I don't even know if Carlson still uh, holds that there was uh, flooding at one event. I showed him at the time a Nature article done by a couple of fellows at, at Harvard that was fairly convincing in terms of its, uh, well, showing that flooding came at many, many different times because there was an ice bridge that dammed uh, Lake Missoula, and that, and every time that ice bridge melted, uh, it, it or ice dam, I mean, melted, the water uh, flowed from Lake Missoula through the Scablands, and uh, we we don't, I don't think anyway. Uh, I think uh, he he would argue otherwise. I don't think we see that kind of flooding in the east. So we got into the details of that, and uh, I, again, I enjoyed talking to him about it. Very bright guy. By the way, I'm on, I'm on my way this summer. If, um, if COVID goes away, I'm headed out to the Scablands uh, this summer to see some of that area. I'll and bring back some slides for you. Ge yeah, that'd be awesome. Geographically, where is that exactly? Uh, they're in eastern Washington. It's uh, all dry land now, uh, pretty dry out there, so, so it's preserved a lot of the things that happened uh, 11, 12,000 years ago on those various floods. I've got a, a picture of the graph in the skeptic article I wrote. Uh, people might want to be interested in taking a look at that. The different periods of flooding out there, they've been very well documented. Now, uh, Carlson would say, yes, there are a lot of of these uh, flooding events, um, but there was a big one uh, that that you know devastated everything out there. 
again, I'm I'm very skeptical on that one because I don't think we're finding any evidence for that that kind of massive flooding, and I I'm pretty sure he would disagree with me on that. So I, I don't want to I don't want to speak for Randall and say okay, you know, this is what he thinks, but I'm I'm pretty sure that that that's his position. Well, it'll definitely be interesting to see where the objective truth on all this stuff winds up, you know, over the next 5, 10, 15 years. It's um, because, again, like I said, and, you know, I think you guys are, I think you're brilliant. I think Hancock's brilliant. I think uh, Carlson's brilliant. And it'd be interesting to see uh, what we find out, you know, because 10 years ago, or not 10 years ago, but uh, several decades ago, we we couldn't have anticipated Gobekli Tepe. Right, so when when Gobekli Tepe Correct. was discovered by Klaus Schmidt, um, it was a huge deal. It was, you know, it was it was an enormous shot in the arm for guys like Hancock, who said that, you know, there had been a uh, civilization that long ago. Um, especially because like the timing kind of lines up as well. So it'd be interesting to see objectively where we land on a lot of this stuff and what what moves forward um, or what we see moving forward. But I appreciate you going into a little bit more depth about that stuff because that's that's what I missed from that podcast with the four of you. And so I appreciate you doing that. I want to take a second also and talk to you about your TED Talk online. Oh, and also, too, you just said the skeptic article you did. I'm going to link to your uh, Twitter profile in the tweet for this podcast and in the podcast description. So people can go to your Twitter and you can post whatever relevant um, documentation you'd like to support whatever it is. Yeah, I'll be happy to do that. Here. Yeah, exactly. So then people can go right through, and you're just at Mark Defont, right? Uh, right, and I also have a website. Mark is spelled M-A-R-C, Defont. Okay. And they can go there and see some of that too. So let's move on to your TED Talk. And uh, if you haven't seen it, your TED Talk is about why we are alone in the universe, which is interesting because a lot of TED Talks that I watch and a lot of, you know, fringe stuff that I watch, the argument is always we're not alone in the universe. So I was wondering if you could kind of tell my listeners why you think we're alone in the universe. Ooh, I, I caught a lot of hell for that TED Talk, including from TED itself. Uh, and I'm, I've... I've asked them why they flagged the talk, and and they've they've never responded to any of my emails. Well, you know what? So, Fuck them because they they flagged one of Hancock's talks too. You know, so that's how you know that they're like independently kind of just. If you're going to invite people to talk about dis and discuss things that are on the fringe, that are you know Ted worthy, right? Ideas worth spreading is their motto. All right, so you're you know you're bringing people on with big ideas and fringe ideas. So what's the point of censoring people and, and giving them crap, you know? Sorry. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it, you make a good point. And by the way, uh, I, I, I don't know if I would use your terminology, but I, I think uh, fuck Ted is, is a, good, a good way to, to put it. Um, I, uh, I think that um, that was the whole point of why they had that TED talk here at the University of South Florida was to challenge ideas. 
So I submitted a proposal to talk about this. It's certainly uh, something that a lot of people have postulated in the past. I'm not the only one. And I think my science is still very uh, real and true. So let me briefly just touch on it. My, my, I, I wrote this book, as you mentioned earlier, uh, called Voyages of Discovery uh, from the Big Bang to the Ice Age. And because I was looking at the whole history of the universe, Earth, and life, I, I kind of had a big picture of, of some of the things that, that were going on throughout our history. And I began to realize that a lot of kind of weird stuff had to happen in very specific ways uh, in order to get humans here. And if it happened any other way, uh, we might not have had intelligent life. I'm not saying... Um, that it's absolutely not true that there's intelligent life out there. I'm only saying that there's a possibility that there's no intelligent life in our galaxy and maybe beyond because of the difficulties of getting intelligent life. Now, I don't know if you want me to get into some of the stuff I talked about, but yes. uh, that's, that's why I, uh, that was the only point I was trying to make. And I took three examples uh, that I thought showed in the 18 minutes I was given to present the TED Talk that showed some evidence of why it might be uh, difficult to get an intelligent life on a planet. So, and th those three things are, you know, discussed in the TED Talk. Do you do you want me to mention them here? Yeah, or? of course. I'm kind of leaning to you, Chris, because you know what your audience wants more than I do or likes. My audience um, wants whatever I want. That's been my, oh, good. Since podcast number All one. Right. I just do whatever I want. And if they don't like it, then they can turn it off. <laughs> well, good but I want to know. I certainly want to hear about it. Well, just a couple of brief things. I think the, the most interesting thing is how, how humans evolved from creatures and trees to people that walked upright on savannas and evolved big brains. That, that event, to me, uh, requires some, some very interesting things. Like the dinosaurs, first of all, they were dominating the planet for 125 million years. And then because of, or we're back to meteorites now, strikes, because of a meteorite out of the blue, all of the dinosaurs on the planet were wiped out, but not the mammals. And the mammals were, you know, tiny little creatures. So it seems to me that in 125 million years, uh, you might get intelligent life if intelligent life was going to evolve um, with the dinosaurs. But we don't see any... When I say intelligent creatures, I mean creatures with the intelligence like us. You don't see that with dinosaurs at all. Uh, so, so apparently you don't, you can't have a reptilian type brain or even a bird brain to develop uh, intelligence uh, of our caliber. You you need a, a, a neocortex like we have, and the neocortex is a, a, exactly what has evolved uh, in humans. And apparently to get a neocortex um, that gets big like we have, uh, you first need to start out in trees where you're, you're using things like digits, 
uh, and you're swinging from limb to limb and you're being selected for for your ability to see greens from browns and right. and uh, see in 3D and that sort of thing. So you're going to develop a, a large brain during that process. And then, you, then of course, you still haven't gotten a, a big enough brain like ours. Uh, chimpanzees are smart, uh, and, and the, the uh, link between us and chimpanzees probably had a similar brain size to that of chimpanzee, but that animal was forced out onto the savanna. Something happens out there in the savanna, and there have been a lot of people postulating what that is, but nobody knows for sure what it was out there that caused us to develop our big brains. But whatever it was, uh, that's what's required. And a lot of people have suggested maybe it was language, uh, maybe it was uh, that, you know, our two hands being free, carry things we need, you know, uh, working together in cooperation with other beings, being able to tell whether other people are deceiving us. All, all, all those and a lot of other things have been postulated for the development of the big brains. But whatever it is, it seems to have occurred because we came out of trees with 3D vision and color vision and uh, were forced to walk upright on a savanna. When you say 3D vision, you mean like trichromatic vision or you mean actual Well, I mean our ability to see in three dimensions. Okay. Uh, not all animals, of course, see in three dimensions. Like uh, if you look at a deer, uh, their eyes are off to the side. Uh, so they're not, they're not seeing the dimensions that we see um, because they evolved to see 180 degrees around them. If you ever watch some deer – one deer will stand looking at one way and another deer will stand looking another way. So they've got 360 degrees covered out on, on the flat ground. But we've got eyes in the middle of our head so that we could see three-dimensionally in trees swinging from branch to branch. If space is flat for you and you don't see in that third dimension and you reach for a tree limb, you might miss it and end up dead <laughs> on the ground. Right. So that's, why, that's what I mean by th three-dimensional sight. So really what you're saying is that, you know, that is such a rare combination of kind of intangibles that all need to occur uh, at once that you think that that can't be done elsewhere. You think that the, the amount of things that had to come together in order for us to evolve and become who we are, that, that that's kind of what makes it impossible that, you know, that difficulty is what makes it impossible for us to be. Uh, with somebody else in, in the in the in the galaxy in the universe. Well, first of all, I, I never use things like uh, you know, never and and things like that. Sorry about that phone call. It's okay. To turn it off. Um, I use things like uh, maybe and uh, in the use of those kinds of words. You know, I'm I'm covering myself. So when I talk about no life out there, I mean I I just think that there's the possibility. No, no, I don't mean no life. I meant no intelligent life. I think there's a possibility that there is no intelligent life out there. And I think there's a really good chance that there's life out there. I wouldn't be surprised if if we found life on Europa or or even Mars. But I don't I don't. I don't know about the rest of the galaxy. And and once you get outside the galaxy, the things are so far away. 
um, assuming that there's no such thing as warp drive, I don't know how you get in contact with intelligent life forms. So we probably never know anyway. And what the hell could be so offensive about that, that Ted talks would want to, you know, curb that or limit that concept. Well, there, I'm so glad that you're giving me the opportunity to explain some of this because boy, I really made some people mad. And one of the things I wanted to do during the talk, and I only had 18 minutes was to tell people, look, I'm not a, I'm not a creationist and, and I'm not trying to speak badly about creationists. I just wanted people to believe or to know that that it, it's been for a long time a creationist argument that, that we're the only beings in this universe that God created only us. And I'm an atheist, so I just wanted people to know that uh, I, I'm not making the argument for creationist point of view. I'm making the argument based on some observations that I've made. Right, as and a scientist. That seemed to irritate a lot of people. So uh, I, I just brought it up kind of towards the end of the talk, but some people got upset at that. It's such if a microcosm comment... of our current culture. It really is. They were going to ask you to come and explore an idea worth exploring, as they say. And then, you know, because of some stupid thing here, there, oh, you said this, you didn't say that, whatever. And now they don't, they didn't invite you back or they're not playing your stuff on YouTube or whatever it is. It's just such a, it's a microcosm of exactly how ridiculous things have gotten, you know, on university campuses and pretty much everywhere else. You know, you, you can't, you can have an opinion, oh, yeah. Mark, as long as it's the right opinion, right? Boy, isn't that the truth? A good friend of mine or a friend of mine over at University of Central Florida was just, is being investigated now because he said some things that were, uh, apparently not acceptable to the university. He's not an alt-right guy. He's just a professor over there. So I'm kind of just shocked at, at our inability to speak, speak freely these days. I know these are hard times, so well, they are, I don't want to offend and, and, anybody either. Well, <laughs> you know what? Fuck them. I mean, the, you, know, you, can't, you can't walk around your whole life worrying about offending people yep, all, right. 24 hours a day so because you drive yourself fucking yep. insane. You know, you, 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 you start double questioning yourself, triple triple questioning yourself. Can I say this? Can I say that? It's just better to just say whatever the fuck you want. You know what I mean? No and then the people buy in and they don't buy in. Then whatever. I mean, that was my idea when I started the podcast. Hey, I'm just going to say whatever I want. And if nobody listens, that's fine. You know, I'm a very happy person by myself. I don't need anybody else's uh, approval of my opinions. But my friend... Well, except that these are guys that are losing their jobs for expressing their opinion well, or threatening to have their jobs taken away. There was a guy at UCLA that was just put on leave for something he said that they felt was inappropriate. And, and it, wasn't, it wasn't racist, in my opinion, but boy, as a lot of people seem to think it was. Yeah, my friend Dave Collum is a uh, professor of organic chemistry at Cornell, an award-winning professor and is uh, is a brilliant guy. He's got, you know, patents and he's just uh, you know, knows his shit cold. He said something on Twitter last week about the incident in Buffalo where the police officer pushed that elderly man over. I don't know if you saw that. Right, right. But uh so Dave commented on that online 
and said something like, you know, what the hell was the guy doing out there in the middle of this war zone to begin with? And, you know, the wound was self-inflicted <laughs> yeah. because... 75 years old, yeah. Because he shouldn't have been out there. And immediately some actor whose name escapes me, some, uh, I think, Indian or Pakistani-American actor, forget his name, but he's got 3 million Twitter followers, retweeted Dave's tweet and called him out and said, oh, and this is, by the way, a professor at Cornell. This is just this is just a couple days ago. Dave was scheduled to come on my podcast on Saturday. He's a recurring oh, I'm guest. I'm so sorry. I don't agree with oh. him on everything, Mark, at all, but I like to talk to him. I like, you know, we have open discourse and open dialogue. Sure. So everybody flooded Cornell with complaints Ugh. and the, you know, people were DMing the Cornell Daily Sun who wrote a big article about it. And then Cornell had to issue a statement on Friday or whatever it was saying, we don't agree with Professor Dave Collins tweets. And then Dave had to cancel his podcast appearance with me on Saturday. Now, how are oh we, gosh. how are we helping when the people that are supposedly you know, fighting for diversity, right? How are we helping when the people fighting for diversity won't, you know, won't allow people to exercise and state their opinions? What's the point of having diversity then? That's not diversity. Then that's just, you know, monarchy. It is crazy. I became a professor partly because I wanted the freedom of speech (laughs) to do my work and not have to fear somebody firing me because I didn't, uh, act the way uh, they thought I should. So, I think you probably are in the business you're in for one of the sa- for some of the same same things. Yeah, it's cathartic, and uh, for me, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I want to be able to say what I want to say, and I want to talk to people that I find interesting. I mean, do you think the what do you think about the the climate on university campuses in general? Well, I did want to talk to you a little bit about uh, about how, um, and, and this is going to maybe seem a pretty toxic uh, to some of your listeners, but it, it's a point that that I I worry a lot about, and and it is that I think uh, young men today are are sort of being asked to toe this line, uh, you know, and one group wants this and another group wants this, and this is all being generated by a, a leftist cadre in our universities uh, that are demanding, uh, in particular, uh, young men uh, to behave in certain ways. And we hear things like toxic masculinity and oppression of women and and a patriarchy and systemic this and that and I'm and and so I I decided to write some articles and put it together for a book uh, because it it's not based on science and that's the point of view that I always try to come from does this have a scientific basis or does it not and all of these are political ideologies and indoctrination of our young students rather than based on science. In fact, there's a tremendous amount of denial on our campuses right now of science. I had somebody on Twitter uh, the other night telling me that biology, uh, what did he say? I think he said it was a social construct. And I thought, you know, if you think biology is a social construct, there's something wrong with you. You've lost 
your way right in reality and i think i think you don't have to mistreat people uh to understand and accept science you know i don't think science is out to hurt people in fact some of the things that are that a radical feminists are offended by are are actually helpful to the cause of women in my opinion but uh and I, I came prepared to day two to talk a little bit about that if you'd like to get into it. But I, sure. once again, a nod to you and what you what you No, think let's you want do to it. I mean, it's one of those points where it requires nuance. You know, like everything else that we talk about, and especially everything else today and, you know, the charged environment that we have, things require nuance. You know, you can be, you can, you can, you can agree that George Floyd was murdered and you can, uh, you know, which I believe, and you can also be against looting and assaulting random people for no reason, you know. But the way that the media presents things, you would think you'd, it would have to be one or the other. You, can, you know, they're, they're mutually exclusive, right? And this is one of those Absolutely. topics that requires nuance because you're going to make some points from a scientific standpoint, and you're not out there, you know, you're not, you're not saying that you're unaccepting of people or how they want to live their lives or, you know, socially what they want to do. Again, I'm a libertarian, right? Like, whatever whatever makes people happy, I support it. I really do. Love life, sex life, whether, you know, drugs, alcohol, whatever you want to do, I'm okay with it. But you're just speaking from the standpoint of science here, right? And this is kind of what, this is kind of what got Jordan Peterson started and got him in trouble to begin with uh, was looking at this from the perspective of science. So, so let's talk about it. Let's hear what you found out. Well, uh, I think, first of all, oh, gosh, I, I think I saw somewhere where 96% of Americans think that uh, George was murdered or certainly unjustly uh, killed. Uh, so, you know, there's nothing about what I'm going to say that <laughs> – would have anything to do with that. I'm talking about uh, an ideology that seems to be fomenting on campus. And in that ideology, they're denying anything that's associated with Western culture. Uh, Part of that is a denial of science. And there's also a part of the feminist movement that thinks that science is a thing that men do in white coats and I, I want to tell, and, and I'm not against women, certainly, and I'm not trying to ignore women, but I, I do want to emphasize to young men that, you know, science is about, um, is showing us that not all of these things that are coming out of these movements are true. And there's a, there's a movement right now among psychologists to claim that we, we have this blank slate that we're born with a blank slate and that we that we have no instincts uh, that we're born with and that's kind of uh, it's kind of gone from there and exploded I, I mean it's it's now getting to the point where women are saying that rape is a, a way that all men suppress all women if you believe Susan Brown Miller and you know so our young men are hearing this this kind of thing and I kind of have to raise my hand and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, let's look at the science here and let's look at at gender 
And what is gender? Well, if you listen to the feminists, the radical feminists, I don't say all feminists, the radical feminists are trying to tell us that gender is a social construct, that society makes us the way we are, that I'm masculine and somebody else is feminine because society has done that. Well, it just doesn't make any sense from a, from a psychological standpoint. And uh, I'll give you some examples of how bad this is. The American Psychological Association just gave out guidelines to help boys. It's, it's the biggest group of psychologists in the United States and maybe in the entire world. And they're basically telling young men that they're born with blank slates uh, and that masculinity is bad, that toxic masculinity is bad. And, I, and I'm thinking, yes, masculinity uh, has associated with it violence, but there's a lot of good things about masculinity too. So men that are masculine, they shouldn't hate themselves in my opinion. Uh, masculinity uh, generates high achievement usually. Uh, and and yet here we have, uh, you know, a guidelines to these people that are going to help or potentially help young men. If you go to see a therapist, they're supposed to be telling them that that masculinity is bad, that it that it's socially constructed, it's anti-femininity, it's it's uh, not being able to show a weakness. Uh, and adventure, risk, and violence are all bad. Well, sometimes violence is good. In fact, women have chosen men because of their abilities to protect them and their families. Now, today, uh, you know, that's, that's a very controversial thing to say, but the biology behind that is, is astronomical. And so we see that we, we see that this mentality is kind of being generated uh, by the universities, and and it seems to be sort of anti-male constantly. Well, and, and and you can be a man, Mark, and and be a, a a proper man and embrace the fact that you are a man and not be a fucking chauvinist asshole. You know, total fucking testosterone raging hard on. Exactly. Dickhead. You know, you you can just embrace. Being a man, you could be, you know, like, like my father's a perfect example. I mean, he's a man. He's a great husband. He's a great father. He's provided. He's, you know, he's active in the community. He He's a cornerstone of our family. He's just a wonderful human being, you know, and, and he, he's not walking around feeling ashamed of being a man. He's just being the man that he is. And, and it's, I think, and obviously I'm not a psychologist, um, but I think this idea of implanting guys with shame for being who they were and who they who they were born as and who they are, I mean, it's just as bad as uh, the other side of the equation because then you got a guy walking around that feels guilty about himself mm-hmm. and he doesn't know why. You know, and then he winds up in therapy. So maybe it's maybe it's a uh, maybe it's a ploy to keep people in therapy. I don't really know, but I mean, I, I've you know gone through hours and hours and hours of cognitive behavioral therapy. I mean, therapy has been one of the nicest things in my life. 
I uh-huh. love it. I think everybody should go through therapy because I think you explore a lot of very interesting things, and um, I would recommend it to anybody. But but having said that, I mean, one of the things that puts people in therapy, and it doesn't just involve gender or who they are as a person, is you know feelings of guilt and feelings of shame that they don't know where they came from, they can't face them head on, they don't know how to approach them. Um, and whether it's being ashamed of the fact that you're a man, even though you've walked around and led a productive life and you've been a gentleman and you know you work for a living and you're a productive member of society and you can't really figure out why the fuck you're supposed to hate yourself, or whether it has something to do with you know being ashamed of who you are in another way, whether it's you know your race or something like that, you know, only you know who you are and what you stand for and what your values are and and you know whether or not there's something to you know why invent something to feel guilty about, right? Exactly. You know, you said something. I can tell you're a bright guy. You said something earlier. You used the word nuance, and that that just hits the nail on the head. This is this is more complex than it seems. The, the nuance here is, has taken us decades to understand uh, the, psycho- the, the evolutionary psychology of all this. And I, I, can, I guess I'm, in a way, trying to show those nuances in, in talking a little bit about evolutionary psychology. Because uh, a, a lot of our behaviors, our jealousies, uh, e- even uh, the, the way we look... Uh, are meant to attract people of the opposite sex. So there's those nuances that a lot of people aren't familiar with and aren't aware of uh, that I think they need to be aware of uh, so that if for no other reason they aren't swamped by this ideology that's taking place on our college campuses and and being kind of run out into regular society. Did I interrupt you or did you have another? No, not at all. I mean, my point is just you can be supportive of of people's individual rights to do whatever they want. And, you know, Absolutely. You, you can love them and you can be friends with them and you can be in a community with them. And you can, you know, while still having a discussion about these things. And that that's part of the problem is, you know, when there's a debate like I know the one that you wrote in this article about, um, you know, female uh, sports athletes not getting paid as much as male sports athletes. You know, you can bring up the point that um, male sports generate a lot more revenue. And so, therefore, you know, the salaries ostensibly should be commensurate with the amount of revenue they bring in because it's a business. Um, And just as, you know, if you were selling Pepsi and I was selling Coke and I was selling you know, 10 times huh. as more Coca-Cola than you were, you wouldn't expect to be making the same salary as me because our, as a business, we're doing better. That's not a statement about gender equality, I don't think. I think it's a statement about, you know, finances. And maybe I'm, maybe you think I'm wrong and maybe I am wrong. But the point is you can't even talk about that now. You can't even say what I just said without somebody immediately turning around and labeling you as whatever, a chauvinist, a misogynist, whatever. There's, there's no nuance. There's no independent, objective examination of facts. Yeah, it's kind of scary, isn't it? Uh, I guess I'd like to try to change that with science. I think science 
will eventually win out, but it's it's going to take. It seems like it's going to take a long time. The problem is that science is a carefully thought out process that takes time and it takes patience and it takes attention span and emotion and being a reactionary. It doesn't take anything. You know, it takes it takes two seconds to to be pissed off about something and not even really know why you're pissed off about it and and just, you know, label somebody or throw an allegation. It takes two seconds to be the person on Twitter that calls for somebody's job, right? Says, that guy's got to get fired. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, if you talk about any of these things on campus, uh, you're automatically, uh, you know, have the big scarlet letter on you, so to speak. So even if you talk about them off campus, well, right, right. Yeah, you made a point. Uh, well, you made several points, but yes, uh, we we have to kind of get back to the basics here. I think there, I think that the feminist movement has a different objective than science, and that's where the two right now are are colliding. At least some of the feminists, what I would call the radical feminists, they seem to feel that they came from a point of view of how do we give women power and take away this so-called male patriarchy, or I should say patriarchy out there. Uh, And science is coming from a point of view of, well, why do men and women behave differently across cultures? Why do we see the same behavior, jealousies and and, um, uh, anger and, and the same things that men like in one culture are the same things men like in another culture or the same things women like in one culture are the same in other cultures. It's a complex topic, but when you do these cross-cultural looks at these different things, you you begin to find out uh, universals to some extent. And uh, this idea that men are trying to suppress women uh, through toxic masculinity or a patriarchy or just uh, patently false. Uh, the the one that drives me crazy is uh, right now women are on this idea that that rape is used to oppress people rather than rape is, is uh, biology and due to biology. But there's a lot of evidence uh, to, to the contrary that men are actually um, – they're of low economic – most people that rape – most men that rape come from low economic status in our, in our society. And those people uh, are probably – and well, we know from studies that they don't develop good relationships with women. And so those are the kinds of people that – those are mostly the kinds of people that rape. I don't want to make generalizations here where – you know, people will will get fired up, but I think we need to we need to be honest with ourselves here when we're talking about such serious consequences. Title IX in the dear colleague letter has been used uh, to basically accuse tons of men that were not guilty of rape. Uh, to, to make sure that they were accused appropriately of rape. Now, I know that's going to generate a lot of fire, but in general, uh, I'm talking to a friend, uh, Cynthia Garrett, who's done research on this, and she's telling me that about 1,500 uh, men are, are in lawsuits with the universities because they've been, they feel they've been wrongly accused of rape due to 
the Dear Colleague letter turned out by the Obama administration. I'm not trying to get political on you here, but uh, fortunately that letter has now been pulled. It it gave a, a nod towards uh, taking rights away from men. So it, it was kind of a – I don't know. Are you familiar with the Dear Colleague letter? I'm not, no. Oh, well, uh, Obama sent it out, uh, and it changed what we would call – beyond a reasonable doubt to the preponderance of evidence in rape cases on campuses. So these cases, they don't go to the outside uh, where, you know, if you murdered somebody on campus, the campus would turn it over to the police. But if you're accused of raping someone on campus, they handle it internally through these diversity programs that developed. And they've, they've literally become, in many cases, kangaroo courts. And uh, there's and, a and wonderful this, the subject matter is so fucking serious. I mean, it's it's criminal, and you know, obviously nobody nobody condones rape, you know, and that's why exactly. in criminal court things have to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt because of the serious nature of them. And you know, preponderance of the evidence is the uh, is the bar that needs to be met in, in civil court for civil disputes. Um, Correct. And exactly, if you don't have a arbiter who is objective, you know, adjudicating the matter between that and the fact that you're not, you don't need proof beyond a reasonable doubt, it significantly lowers the bar, whether, you know, whatever it is you're talking about, whether it's larceny, whether it's, you know, any other crime, you you would, you need significantly less uh, evidence, if any, if any direct evidence. Well, and we've seen this play out, you know, the Duke rape case, and we saw it with the claims uh, that the Virginia fraternity raped, uh, uh, mass raped a woman, gang raped a woman, and it turned out to be all fictitious. So these, you know, these scenarios are are kind of astonishing. It's it's almost like our society's trying to get males and and uh, punish them for things of the past. I don't know that we deserve uh, to be treated that way. I think men need to stand up and say, okay, enough's enough. We want to be treated fairly. We'll treat you fairly. That's that's the reasonable thing, in my opinion. Yeah, I think everybody has a right to be treated fairly, what, regardless of your gender, your race, your color, your creed, yes. your sexual orientation. Everybody has Everybody has the right to be, you know, to be treated objectively, you know, at zero. Everybody has the right to have a fairness, clean slate. Some people are more predisposed to being afforded that fairness. Others aren't. It depends on situations, circumstances, environments, the nature of, you know, all of these things. And so uh, it's interesting because when you talk about it and you're talking about men or like now if you're talking about, you know, people that are white, you can't talk about it at all um, because of the reactionary nature of society. Yeah, I notice right I'm now. staying away from that one. Well, uh, and, and, and you know, for the most part, I'm going to also, but I'm just trying to make a broader point. Uh, I, I agree. Well, I think this is all under the term intersectionality. This is where, uh, you know, if, if you're a white straight male, you're on the bottom of the pyramid. And uh, as you go up, uh, you have a more right to claim oppression, and, and I don't. I think it's very scary for us to start using uh, these things that are related to skin color and gender 
to um, to point at people and um, literally, I think, discriminate against them if they if they don't meet the certain criteria. Well, it, and it's so, not to say that these things don't play a role. Yes, inside exactly. because they do. You know, and that ha- that has to be acknowledged. But to the degree that we can look objectively at the facts, um, that I think is uh, equally as important to to understand. Well, yeah, and I have coming- a daughter in college. Go ahead. I certainly don't want her being touched by any idiot in a right on campus. Right. So, so what? How it's can, personal. How can people get? Um, get to your work if I want to send uh, listeners to some of the work that you've done in uh, the article that you sent me uh, last night. Uh, what's the best way for them to kind of get in touch with Mark DeFont if they want to? Um, I'm, I'm putting all this together for a book, so uh, I'm hoping to get the book out here pretty soon. Uh, I've just found out a terrible thing, and that is that Amazon's uh, – a friend of mine published a book on um, – it, it was not an alt-right book by any means. Uh, he's the one that I mentioned was being investigated uh, by the University of Central Florida. And uh, he published a book that uh, was uh, selling on Amazon, and an Amazon uh, found it and said, nope, you, you can't publish this anymore. So even if you wanted to publish a book yourself, you can't publish it if it doesn't meet Amazon's requirements. It's sort of like there's a stifling in our country today of alternative points of view. It's very, very scary. And I think if you if you listen to uh, Joe Rogan uh, or if, you, if you're for Han- Graham Hancock, I mean, what if we decided that Graham Hancock couldn't give his alternative points of view? How would people feel about that? Well, that's what's happening in college campuses. We're being told what we can say and what we can't say. And that, to me is stifling um, intellectual uh, discussions. Yeah, Definitely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And this thing with Dave Collum over the weekend is a perfect example. I didn't agree with him. I didn't agree with his point that he made, but I I was anxious to talk to him about it on Saturday and have a discourse about it and have a have an open discussion about it because – First off, I think what he was trying to say couldn't be fleshed out in just three or four tweets, which I think was sure. part of the problem. Nuance. You know, yeah, exactly. Right. There's, you know, it's a complex issue, and he's, he, you know, I know there was more than what he said online that needed to be discussed, um, and I was interested in hearing his point of view, and I was interested in giving him my point of view, you know. But now, because of what happened, we're just shutting down the discussion completely, and I think that's that's where things really get dangerous. Yeah, and if you he, uh, was he afraid to come on? I, I suppose he was. If his university was, I don't really know. Him. I don't know the nature of why he decided to cancel, but he just said, "Hey, like I'm going to cancel until things cool off for a little bit," and he locked his Twitter account. Um, wow, you know, which is he's got fifty seven thousand followers. I mean, he's uh, oh, that's a shame. He's relatively well known, and and. You know, people have him on to talk about economics and just, you know, as a commentator, he's he, he people embrace him because he has a different point of view. I like having him on because I like to hear the way that he I mean, he just looks at things totally different than a lot of other people. And I think that makes him interesting, even though I don't agree with him on everything. 
So, you know, one of my one of my discussions with him got taken off YouTube. Uh, I syndicate my podcast. Oh, is that so, right? Yeah, it goes through Apple Podcasts and all these other uh, things. And then one of them it goes to is YouTube. They removed one of my discussions with him where we were basically just talking about conspiracy theories. You know, we were talking about various types of conspiracy theories, 9-11 and JFK and chemtrails and the Las Vegas shooting and all this stuff. And I just... I was interested in his take on those things just because he thinks differently. And uh, and they took that whole episode down. They took it down off YouTube. Two hours and 30 minutes of discussion. They said, And they sent me a message. They said, hate speech. They took it down because of hate speech. And then I emailed them back to appeal, Mark, and say, what about the... I don't understand. There's no hate speech. I'm not a hateful person. So nobody could have said any hate speech in here. I would have picked up on it too in the middle of the podcast, I would have made a note and said, oh shit, that may have crossed the line a little bit. But there was nothing like that. So, who knows, man? Well, if that if that got uh, tagged for hate speech, uh, then uh, I suspect us just talking about this might get tagged as, as hate speech. And it's certainly not my position to hate anyone. Uh, in fact, I'm trying to help a group of people here that I think have been told lies a group of young men so mark so i would love for you to come back on in uh when so first off when's your book going to be done are you close or are you still in the middle of it or what uh no i'm uh i am just wrapping it up now i've got a great uh um uh, agent and starting to submit it to a few uh a few uh, publishers. I'm working on a, f- a few rewrites uh, by made by him. His name's Andrew Stewart. Stewart. Uh, he's handled uh, the woman that wrote um, the cop book. Um, something about why people hate cops. McDonald, Heather McDonald. So he's good. At, he's a good. Uh, agent so i'm i'm looking forward to getting out i hope amazon will allow it to come out on their site yeah and if not you know sell it elsewhere that's uh i I don't know what's going to need to happen for these social media companies to get the message i I really don't i mean this is part of probably part of why rogan moved to spotify exclusively and he's going to be able to say, I, I remember him saying on several of his podcasts, you know, oh, we really, we toe the line with YouTube. They're not really happy with us. It's like, how could they not be fucking happy with you? You got 8 million subscribers, right? Good for Joe. I mean, that's what's going to have to happen if if they keep doing this. Everybody's got their own set of rules. Yeah. And it's just. Well, did we, uh, did, did I cover the things that you wanted to cover in terms of uh, Joe Rogan and my TED talk? Yeah, I want to make sure that I'd... we got through all my notes here. Is there anything else that you want to touch on before we, uh, before we call oh, it? Oh, it's just been, uh, it's just been fun. I, I think, uh, the history of the universe and life on this planet is, is a fun topic. I'm, uh, also currently rewriting the original tech. That book came out in 1998. So I'm doing an updated version. Uh, I use it for one of my classes at USF. Uh, and it's it needs updating. You know, science changes so fast that you gotta gotta get get it updated and redone. So 
I'll get a second edition out on that in the next year or so. And, uh, love to come back and talk to you about some of that stuff too. Yeah, I think that's a different podcast and we just do the book. We just talk about Voyage of Discovery. Yeah, that'd be fun. Because in my notes here, there was an area where I asked you like, hey, what do you want to talk about? And you just sent me something back. You're just like, history of the world or something. And I was like, holy shit, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to need a couple of hours. But uh, Oh, history of <laughs> History of the universe. Yeah, right. Yeah, we'll we'll we'll, we'll do it in fifteen minutes. You know. Yeah. yeah. But uh, let's uh, let's say in a couple of weeks you come back and, and we'll do that one too because I I want to give that its due. Well, I certainly enjoy uh, talking to you. Yeah, absolutely, Mark Defont. Thank you so much for uh, for coming on, and I'm going to put a link to all your stuff in the podcast description so my listeners get a chance to see it. All right. Chris. It's been great talking to you. All right. Speak to you soon. Thank you, Mark. That was Mark DeFont of University of South Florida and of Joe Rogan Podcast, I think 967. I can't remember, but if you want to go back and watch that one, it's an interesting one uh, and certainly will give you uh, some point of view as to what the hell I was talking about for the first hour of this podcast. Always an interesting discussion with uh, Mr. Defon. I can't wait to have him back on. We're going to do the whole history of the world thing as he sees it. I just find him immensely interesting. I have some great podcast guests coming up over the next uh, couple of days and actually next two weeks. Uh, thank you guys so much for tuning in. My patrons, again, for supporting the podcast. But for right now, I'm the fuck out of here. Peace.